Welcome to Shooting the Frisbees with your hosts, Jake and Randy, discussing all things freestyle frisbee and whatever else that comes up. Welcome to Shooting the Frisbees with Jake and Randy. Hey, Randy, how's it going? Hey, Jake, I'm doing great today. How are you doing? I'm doing wonderful. So I wanted to start us off by asking you a question. I've noticed that a lot of jammers, uh, they have a style. You know, you know, when you see them in a jam, you're going to see certain clothing, certain actions, certain just something about them that really stands out. And for you, your style is a baseball cap and knee braces. And so I wanted to ask you, is there a story behind those things? Oh, that's funny. I, I never thought of it as style. Uh, it was It's all really very functional. And I don't know if it's really a story. It's just that uh, I've always worn a hat just because I've wanted to keep the sun off of my face. And as I've gotten older, and now I don't have as much hair as I used to, it really is now to keep sun off of my solar panel that is now on top of my head. <laughs> And uh, the knee braces were just because I've always had um, bad knees, and it really has worked. Um, when I play without the knee braces, my knees will ache something fierce. So they really help out the after jam for sure. Nice. nice. So let me let me ask you something about the hat really quick. So I've tried jamming with the hat, and I find that it it messes up my vision up above my forehead. I can't see the disc coming down on me from a really steep angle. And so that's why I don't wear a hat after having tried it. And I wonder, do you experience that? And if so, do you, how do you deal with it? You know, I don't really experience that. And maybe it's because I've just gotten so used to wearing the hat that I've learned how to get around that. But speaking of something getting in my way on my head, I don't like to wear sunglasses when I jam, because I feel like that gets in my way of my periphery and stuff. I know a lot of people jam with sunglasses, but I just can't do it. But the hat is not any visual hindrance at all. I have a, exactly the same experience with sunglasses. I feel like it changes my perspective of where my hands are in relationship to the disc. And then I miss brushes because of wearing glasses. So, yeah. Absolutely. I, I never never know how people can do that. Like Pat Marin, he like always wears sunglasses. Larry Imperiali always wears sunglasses. Uh, so is, is there somebody else that you can mention who has the style, as I'm saying in quotes, is what they wear? Well, Pat Marin was one because he's got the sunglasses and he always has them tied back with the chums. And he's got that inverted, the inverted visor. He's always got his visor on upside oh, down. Yeah, right, right. Um, the other one I think of is Clay because he always has those ankle bracelets and sometimes he even has bells on. <laughs> Clay sometimes has all sorts of stuff on. You know, he wears nails on every single finger. He's got 10 nails on. Did you know that? I did not know that. That's amazing. <laughs> I know. Like, wow, that's a lot of commitment right there. Yeah, that is a lot of commitment to glue 10 nails on. I can only do one on each hand, and I can't do any more than that. It's too much. Yeah, I, I only wear uh, a nail on each index finger. I know some people will put a nail on their middle finger as well, so they have on the index finger and on the middle finger. But I can't put a nail on my middle finger because it gets in the way of my tipping. I have exactly the same experience. Got a tip with the middle finger, delay with, with the first finger. We should have a whole other episode about like how many nails do you wear and what are the pros and what are the cons? <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, hey, why don't we jump into today's episode? We are going to continue our conversation with Crazy John Brooks and hear more stories from the Bud Light Tour. Enjoy. So tell us about the Paramount in Amarillo, Texas. Oh, yeah. We, we made a couple of friends out of this uh, these brothers that whose family owned a huge Anheuser-Busch distributorship in Amarillo, Texas. And uh, first time we went down, super awesome, Thompson Park, all kinds of stuff happened. And we went out for some night fun. And, man, these brothers were really – they uh, – we really had some fun together. They said, now, listen, man, tomorrow we're going to do the park tomorrow. And tomorrow night, we're taking you to Paramount. We're going to go see Paramount. It's awesome. Y'all going to play. You're going to get on the dance floor, and they got a good sound system. It's going to be awesome. So we're fired up. So we go the next day. We did our gig. Go to the Paramount Club. First of all, it's just towering. It looks like um, like sci-fi movie. It's this huge factory industrial thing. That used to be a big, big potato chip factory. And this gentleman bought the whole thing and he turned in this like ideal part of it into a two and a half story tall nightclub. That was just amazing. It had a 25 foot tall Wurlitzer jukebox with the DJ in the top of it. Like not the arm needle thing, but the real DJ. That was pretty neat. Did a great gig there. We went out kind of walking around with the owner after that. His name is Lowell Staff. Lowell had grown up in the carnival with his family, deeply involved with the carnival, both performing and producing and you know, traveling for years and years. And Lowell had become a collector of player instruments, player musical inventions, among other things. And uh, But this particular night, the first night we come to meet, now it's like two or three in the morning. We're walking through taking this tour. I remember the one thing, Chip, this was fun uh, for us. Uh, we ended up going down here two or three different years, and uh, we'd, we'd do the same process. We'd play the Paramount, and then we'd hang out with Lowell afterwards. Okay, so first things first. So he's like, uh, he closes the club, bam, the door's locked. He's like, all right. So he goes, won't y'all get y'all a drink? So he made us these huge, like, boat drinks, like Kahlua drinks, and we start rolling around and then go up to that kind of a secret door kind of and then all of a sudden it opens up warehouse setting and i'm going wait a minute is that what i think it is and i chipper we look at each other going holy shit this it's a huge industrial floor it's probably like 100 feet to a side of a wall and it's full of real fire trucks all ancient like can't even believe it horse drawn unbelievable we go out we start you know touching a couple and he's like now hold on now Wait till I get over there. <laughs> and then Lowell, he says, uh, yeah, I've got a few of these. Let's go on over here. So uh, we walked right by this huge uh, industrial roll-up door. And I noticed it had a couple of like old, old ancient like signatures in it that were even dusted over. I just reached over real quick, just went crazy. And then Chip, Chipper, whatever, maybe a date or something. Um, I mentioned that because we would go back later and, and put our initials by that signature and then the next year put it by that. Just a couple more things here. Uh, we go through a secret door and we're like leaning over. You know, it's probably maybe six foot total clearance. And he's a huge guy, six five. And uh, he says, uh, check this part out. And he uh, flicks a light switch that kind of lights a little hallway. And then he looks at, he's up next to a wall with some pictures on it, and he just kind of pushes and pushes in, and he's like, pushes in, and this wall goes inwards. And he goes, come on in. So we went in, and now we're going inside this very small room, 
super densely packed room, full size ceiling though. We can stand up and it's full of the most amazing baseball paraphernalia I could have ever imagined. Racks of jerseys, books, volumes of cards and pictures and sign this and a whole cool row of bats and stuff. Amazing. He goes, nah, neat. That's baseball. Y'all don't like baseball though, I bet. Come on here. I'm going to show you something. And he's like, come on out. We left. <laughs> We're in there like one minute. And then uh, we went out, got on this industrial elevator. I was so stoked. And he's like, yeah, we're going to go all the way to the top. So we go up and uh, still working these boat drinks. And um, this opens up and it is kind of, uh, you know, it's multiple ridges. Once we step out on the building and you can tell it's top floor, no windows, slanted side walls. And then I'm looking at what I I think it looks like a keyboard. We get up closer and he goes, hey, uh, well, and y'all play the piano? And I was like, I, you know, I can, you know, you know, maybe my mom did. And he's like, uh, well, come on over here and we get closer. And this is uh, this unbelievable four tiered pipe organ dream condition, man. He starts pointing around. And now when you look now, you can notice through the shadows in the back. And there's just hundreds of pipes. Absolutely pristine. Absolutely. And we sat down and played take me out to the ballpark and it was awesome just you know having a little fun and then uh so i got to do my little thing you know i play the tubular bells the exorcist and i mean it got spooky we left we had to go so that's it we're stopping that's it no more of that <laughs> we're doing so good before this crazy but i think it was the weight of our you know boat drinks that kind of got us back to the elevator and what have you back down to ground floor but uh we we, we uh over the years you know really made some some you know, had some wonderful times with Lowell. Unfortunately, I think he passed a couple of years ago, uh, if I was told. But uh, to kind soul, you think about something so special as that creation, you know, that he turned a potato chip factory into, you know, a number of fantasies. But they were his. And they were just enjoyable by others. So, you know, those of you out there that share uh, Randy and Jake, that's what your show does. It shares, you know, this is shout out to those that choose to share. You know, I'm sure we could probably dedicate years of podcasts just to the Bud Light stories, right? I'm, I mean, I'm sure they're endless. I, I feel like we should touch a little bit about the China tour and Tiananmen Square and kind of hear your perspective of what all went down, because we've heard a couple different versions. It'd be nice to hear from the horse's mouth about your experience there in China. China. Well, you know that it was not it was really impossible to begin with the the fact that we even got on the plane i mean that was a small miracle i get a call from dean like uh nine or ten days out of departure dean called and said hey crazy what's up do you guys have passports and i had mentioned that i did but i'll check with the guys and i did and and joey and chip were without passport he said, well, do you think it's possible? Because I might have a gig for us. I would really like you to do this gig with us. And I'm like, well, okay, well, passport. He goes, yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, over, it's overseas. It could be in China. So anyway, uh, and then uh, we need you to do this. Think about that. And I'm going, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hey, Dean, you said China. Yeah, China. That just made it, <laughs> made it seem like the passport was going to be even harder to get. I got the call on a Wednesday. I called him back on Thursday to say they don't have. He said, well, if you want to do this gig and you can have them by next Friday, you got the gig, you know, and they were prepared to do without the, the Frisbee team. 
Saturday, we're down at this press conference. We meet everybody, and then we get pretty excited. While we're down there, Chip and Joe, they talk to Jan, Dean, and the guys, Dr. Altfeld, and make some really good first impressions. So that's what sold it, because they were hell-bent now. They were ready to do anything they could. Chip, he's like the only human born in Hollywood. You know that? He's born in Hollywood. I know a lot of people say they're from Hollywood. Chip was actually born there. That's the L.A. Department of Records. Not that difficult uh, to deal with. Joey, on the other hand, grew up in Manhattan, and his father also changed the spelling of his last name three times. So that does not help. This all went down, remember, in less than a week. So uh, we were able to make contact, get the application. We drove down in Kate's truck, delivered Chip's application in time. They said, we will you know, put a rush on this. We already had the visas approved uh, because there was a letter from Dean's people that had our names, and there was already some precursor to our applications. And then Joey, and that was where the real difficulty was, um, no cell phones, no, you know, not a lot of resources back then. But uh, we're able to finally find Joey's birth record and have the spelling adjusted because his father had put an apostrophe in there. We, were, this was a Friday departure. So that was uh, a limo picked us up at our house down at the beach on Friday. It was Thursday that we drove down again in the Toyota. Uh, picked up Chip's paperwork, drove back to Santa Barbara, and all it got down to now was Joey. The hardest thing about this was to get my dad to loan me 60 bucks on his credit card so I could pay for this overnight shipping because I got Joey's passport working now and I got the address, but I got to pay. So uh, my dad was in Kansas City, you know, so yeah, it made it happen. And that, that thing showed up on Thursday so, you know, we we left about sunrise on Friday morning, made it down there. That was, uh, let's see, this, we got the band, camera crew, handful of um, technicians, engineers, and Fribsy team. So, so when you say the band, you're talking about the band Jan and Dean, right? Jan and Dean, right. Sorry. Were, and, they, the only, were they the only musicians on that tour? Was it just Jan and Dean and you guys? Well, uh, it makes me think uh, the Endless Summer Beach Band, but it was not. It was the, there was another name. It's because uh, Randall Kirsch, gosh, I can't remember the exact name of the band, but normally they were the Endless Summer Beach Band. And that's what toured with Jan and, Dan, Jan and Dean for years. But uh, so and here's what I was going to tell you. It's the cool count is that uh, two, three, 32 people total on a chartered 747 to Tokyo and then Beijing and then Shanghai. Yeah, baby. Frisbee in the aisles, I'm saying. Yeah, that was awesome. Just imagine playing. There was like 250 seats on these things. And there's just, you know, a couple of handfuls of us, um, you know, mostly camera crew, some press. Lorimar, you know, I have a copy of that movie. I'm waiting to put that up on the YouTube of Maximus, maybe. But I don't know. They, uh, you know, the Chinese government. After all this was said and done, the movie was finished, but the, it, I'm pretty sure the Chinese um, government have still put the the no on the release of the thing. What's the movie that you're talking about? Uh, it's called Jan and Dean, The Friendship Tour. But it's oh. a movie that Lorimar did, HBO Lorimar. Let's just remember something from the plane. So I'm sitting with Jan for a little bit. We're just kind of, you know, hanging, talking, telling the story. We're talking a huge empty plane. So we were like in little pods, just hanging out, 
And so he starts telling me, he says, great, I'll tell you a story live. I go, it's cool, dude. Thank you. I love you, Jan. And, you know, everything he says is just like so quotable. And, um, you know, Dean was off doing something else. And when he, but now we got a couple more people leaning over the back of the seats, listening. And like, and then I see like, here's the camera lens. I see pop down and just like lodge right there. It's like two feet in front of us. And so I know we're, we're this is a moment. And uh, he's saying, it's crazy. It's the uh, first thing he's using is pointing his fingers how he can. You know, if you understand uh, what Jan's, um, situation after the accident you know as the right side of his body had lost some of its mobility and it also ended up uh, affecting his voice to, to, to some extent but still not enough to interfere with this beautiful voice but uh he was saying uh first is thing life love like yeah love you're so right and and then second life happiness yeah, for sure, man. I'm happy right now. And then, yeah, third, money. Like, for sure, man, you got to have the money. And, like, we're all looking at each other. Yep, agreeing. Dude, you are so on it, Jan. And then he's like, and then he goes, and then, and then, most important in life, fucking. <laughs> and we're just like, we lost it. We're just like, the whole, we're just like, it was just perfect. You couldn't have scripted it any different. That reminds me. Uh, this has, doesn't have anything to do with freestyle, guys. It's okay. Let's hear it. You know, it was the most difficult part of the, well, hell, our first show. We didn't even, we'd already been in country for three or four days, you know, going through these meetings and the press conference and this and that. And a lot, a lot of, before we even rehearsed, we didn't get to rehearse until the day of show in uh, Shanghai. So, what happened was uh, we, you know, everybody's fired up. We got this. It's good. First show. And I remember a couple of songs where there was zero applause. This is a 18,000 seater. Zero. Not two hands did not touch it. Nowhere. Nothing. And this is our first performance there. So all this hoopla leading up to this. And we found out later is that the Chinese government, the Cultural Exchange Committee, these guys were just furious. They're going, you know what? Nobody knows any of your songs. Nobody understood what Jan and Dean... Well, and poor Dean's right in the middle of this. And uh, Peter DeCressel, the ED, and, and these guys are going, uh, do you know Cuntily Load? And uh, they're like, what do you mean, John Denver? Yep, sure. Oh, that's good. Very good. Do you know Lucky Lacoon? And they're like, well... Yeah, Peters, very good. So what happened is um, they kiboshed 95% of the set list. And we stayed up the very first night, remember, after the very first show. Stayed up, or just one, one group is over there working on key changes. Other people are trying to get lyrics intact. Other people are rewriting the, you know, I think they were trying to incorporate some uh, dancers from, uh, they had an American choreography come over there. Um, but Chinese dancers that had never moved their hips like that. So total flop. Couldn't do the hula hoops. You just hear them hit the ground pretty quick. So another, you know, unexpected uh, catastrophe. But um, so we stay up all night and uh, they come up with a new set list. And and uh, the result of which was the show on the second night, this totally revamped set. Some of the stuff these guys had only played in rehearsal just then and uh, 
So it was reshaped. And if, if you don't know already, you know, the second night in Shanghai was when all the unrest happened, when I just some things that I had done kind of uh, dominoed and it kind of just it, shit went totally wrong that night and uh, horribly wrong for, for a handful of people uh, physically. It was just uh, it was just a bad deal. But, uh, you know, you should have heard these people roar after country road was done and you know singing along with it's it made the movie too uh, musicians were furious but uh so when you say things went terribly wrong are you talking about tiananmen square where things were going no, wrong no we had uh that's 80 you're, you might be thinking of the massacre that was in 89 and this is 1986 when we were there uh we did some jams there at tiananmen and it was fun. I mean, crowds so big you couldn't see the end of it. And right there in front of the, you know, Forbidden Kingdom and everything. It's really, it's really awestruck. And, uh, but uh, no, is uh, you may not want to get into this. And I, I think that's a lot. Let me, let me try just for one second. Just I'm going to, I'm going to leave you with something that will kind of give you a bit of an indicator as to the type of story this is. Where, on one hand. It was just people reacting to something that they hadn't experienced before, something they hadn't seen before. And on the other hand, it was someone who, I think this person that is the catalyst for this story was was sent from the higher power. I think I, I, I need to find this person too. It's a lot. This is a, it's a, it's a heavy one here. I and mean, I'm still actively think about this to this day. I worry about this person and a, a couple few friends that were with him at the time but yeah it was gnarly you know it's the very minimal newspaper stuff that we were able to preserve chip and i were able to get some papers back but yeah, it was uh you know it kind of made my stomach tight but it became our purpose you know we became like focused on kind of wanting to put some color back into things because it shocked us all it was only our second night at on this tour you know so didn't mean to make it sound like a bad thing but you'd be amazed at what kind of cans of spinach uh frisbee can crush open and you'd be surprised how many different things you know frisbee has gotten the world into yeah so frisbee is really a great connector and even such you can go into a situation with the greatest intentions and it just doesn't always work out the way you want it to yeah, that's for sure. And as Crazy was uh, saying there, it didn't quite work out the way that he was expecting it to. But it is true. Frisbee is a great connector. And I, I do it all the time whenever I'm traveling or I'm waiting at a bus stop and I have a Frisbee in my hand. I'll I'll just like look at somebody and I'll throw the Frisbee at them and they automatically grab it and, and they throw it back. And when they throw it back, it's always accompanied with a smile. It's like just this immediate connection. And it usually isn't a diss, but it's more of a whiz ring when I'm kind of just walking around in a city or something and I'll just fire the whiz ring at somebody and they'll be a little surprised and kind of startled. And then you just see the smile kind of creep onto their face and they toss it back and we walk off in our, our own way. And, you know, there's that nice little connection that was just made. Yeah, it's super cool. It's a really, it's a really great way to connect with somebody that uh, you don't know, and especially someone who doesn't speak your language, because people know instinctively what they're supposed to do with it: grab it, catch it, throw it back. We're working together. Right, the international language of frisbee. That's right. <laughs> well, on that note, I'll talk to you next time. Talk to you next time. 
Thanks for listening to Shooting the Frisbees with Jake and Randy. To contact us or for more info, check us out at frisbeeguru.com. Home to Haynesville, Shooting the Frisbees, and live stream.